Wendy Wood is a social psychologist who studies why it is we do the things we do. And her expertise is habits, how they work and what they are. But she didn't set out to study habits. At first, in her research career, she wanted to understand how people persist, you know, how they stay with a task, even when it's challenging, how they stick with it. Most of the research that I had done up until the 1990s was about attitude change and how to get people to change their attitudes. And that's really important work. But what became clear is we knew how to get people to change their attitudes initially, but then sticking with that change and acting on it in their behavior was something quite different. What you would think, what Wendy thought, was that people who persist are tough. They have willpower and resolve and really strong attitudes. And to test this idea, she looked at the studies, and there were a lot of them out there, like more than 60. They measured the difference between what people intended to do and what they actually did. So they intended to take public transportation or they intended to go to the gym, but how often did they actually pull it off? Well, not very often, it turns out. Wendy Wood says she found a person's intention didn't in fact matter all that much. There was something else going on. People who persist at tasks like eating healthfully, being productive every day, writing a lot, exercising continually, they do so without thinking really about what they're doing. So persistence doesn't involve conscious thought and decision-making in the way that, say, our attitudes and beliefs, our judgments, our decisions do. Mm. Instead, it seems to proceed sort of separately from our conscious thinking selves. So what is that? <laughs> That's, that? That was the puzzle that I started with. What is the thing that keeps us repeating if it's not our decisions? Wendy says there's this apparatus at work in the human brain. It's like vast, but it's mostly hidden away and it mostly runs on its own. And sometimes it works against us. For example, studies show the more we think about doing something, the less we're likely to actually do it. And in one study by a psychologist named Daniel Wegner, the more we try not to think about something, the more we do. Dan Wegner was a very creative researcher. And what he did is he had people try not to think of a white bear. And why this is so interesting is because none of us think about white bears much anyway. So there's not much motivation or desire associated with that thought. But when people, after people had tried not to think of a white bear, they tried to control those thoughts, and then were given an opportunity to think about a white bear, they thought about a white bear constantly. They reported feeling obsessed with white bears. Mm. Because the simple act of inhibiting one behavior seems to give it energy to reappear in the future, to come to mind. And he called this the ironic effects 
of self-control. And this also helps to confound all of our attempts to change our behavior. So it's not enough that habit memories persist over time, but also self-control has these ironic effects that make self-control not very helpful either. The combination makes it very difficult for us to change our habits in the way that we typically try to do so. It's just part of the mental apparatus that we have that once you try to constantly not think about something, Mm. then it becomes the thing you can't help but think about. So you see what you're up against when you think about your goals for the new year? This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Wendy Wood is with us today. She's written a book that explores basically how it is you unlock the unconscious part of your brain that makes a habit. We all know that we need to eat more fruits and vegetables. We know we need to exercise more. We know that sleep is important to productivity and to happiness, to our well-being. But just knowing these things, learning these things, is not the same as doing them. So what is that disconnect? What is the disconnect between what we think and believe and then what we actually persist at, Hmm. what our behavior keeps doing? And that's what I became very intrigued by, and that's what this book is about. What makes persistence unique and special? Wendy Wood is a professor of psychology and business at the University of Southern California. Her book is called Good Habits, Bad Habits. You mentioned your cousin's experience trying to lose some weight as a way of explaining how difficult it can be to change ourselves. Talk a little bit about that. Basically, what is it that's keeping her from losing the weight? You see, the truth is most of us don't understand what it is that drives our behavior. And we don't acknowledge this idea that we're not being fully rational. Like we're thinking that it's intentional, but it's, that's not necessarily what's going on. Yeah. So in my cousin's case, she lives in a food rich environment. And like most of us, she thinks if she makes a decision, she can decide not to eat as much as she typically does. And that's fine. And it works for most of us for a few weeks. But the problem is, is that all of those environmental cues, the constant interaction with food, the lack of ability to exercise easily, Mm. it's not easy to eat healthfully. So all of those environmental forces continue And she can change her behavior in the short run, but in the long run, she's fighting them. And she's also fighting herself because she has formed habits in that environment. And habits are what actually helps us maintain. That's where I got to in my research is that the mechanism of persistence The way people persist is not through conscious control. It's through a non-conscious, automatic process of responding to the environmental cues around us. 
And once we learn to do that, it's very hard to change. Is the idea of willpower, is that, is that real? You talk about how it's an idea that's really prevalent. How did we get the willpower hypothesis in the first place? Because you say this is a myth that's been around for a, for a very long time. Well, I think Americans are particularly susceptible to it because of our history as the Puritan work ethic. They believed that self-denial and self-control was a way to get to heaven. And I think some of those beliefs still permeate our culture so that we value this notion of self-control. I'm in charge. But more than that, we only know those parts of ourselves that are the conscious decision-making controlling parts. The non-conscious parts, we just don't have access to by their very nature. They're not part of our awareness. So we don't really understand how they work. And that's what gets in my cousins and all of our efforts when we try to change. Yeah. You say that the, the kind of the error behind, I guess, this willpower idea is that this idea that we somehow we have a single mind. But, but that's, not, that's not how it works. It's not just a single mind in, in operation. Our brains evolved to have multiple connecting systems that are to some extent integrated but also can work separately. And so there's a habit system that stores habit memories, which you've done in the past that got rewarded. And then there's our conscious thinking selves. And they don't always connect. Sometimes they do, but not always. I want to work through some of the, the sort of the science behind all of that as, as we go along. You, you mentioned that our minds naturally form habits. Um, explain how that's just part of our nature. Were, were these traits things that, you know, habits, did that evolve as we became successful? As, you know, did, the, did they help us survive, for example, the establishment of these just unconscious habits? Yes. We share the habit memory system with other, other mammals. And what habit memories do is they code what you have repeated over and over again in a given context to get a reward. And if you are in that context again, your habit is your best guess for what's going to get rewarded. So they're very functional in that way. Once you have repeated an action enough to have formed a strong habit, then that habit just sort of runs off without you even thinking about it. So it's functional and it's efficient. The problem is that what got you rewards in the past, Mm. so for my cousin, what was rewarding for her in the past was eating while talking on the phone, eating while she goes to the... the, um, the mall, the local shopping mall, yeah. eating in her car, all of those are rewards, things she's learned um, to get the rewards. And so when she gets into those contexts again, 
what pops into mind is, oh, food, because that's what she did before. And we don't realize the functioning of that habit memory system, so we assume, geez, I must really want this food. Yeah. So you describe it as um, this kind of internal war going on inside of us. Um, Mm -hmm. And the idea is to what? To make – can you make a habit a conscious thought or do you just have to find – like how do you – get? because this is what the book is about. How do you bring goals and habits into harmony because they seem to be running away from each other? Yes, your habits – are always based on past rewards. So it's the behavior you got rewarded for in the past. Yeah. yeah. And our goals shift. <laughs> we it it might be wonderful to stop by a vending machine and get donuts for lunch today because you're really pressed for time and it's a way of eating something so that You don't have to stop for lunch. So that could be a great thing. Mm. But you do it three or four days in a row, and you start to realize it's not that good for you. And you do it for a few weeks, and you start to form a habit. And then your goal should shift (laughs) so that if you're smart, your goal will shift, and you'll realize, I need to start eating something healthier. Um, But your habit is still there. So around lunchtime, you're going to start thinking about donuts the thing that got rewarded in the past. Hmm. I wanted to ask you about this study you did with students at Texas A&M because it gets us to this question about what what is a habit exactly. And this research technique, uh, I think it was called re, uh, experience sampling. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about that because I was really th- – there's kind of a magic number that appears um, yeah. in, in the book about w- what percent of the time – our actions are just performed without any th- actual thinking. And the number was – we can get there, but it was really surprising to me. But talk a l- little bit about this experience sampling that you were doing. Yeah. So the, the challenge for us initially was to try to figure out how do you study something that people don't know anything about? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they can't report on. So you can't use questionnaires, surveys. So we came up with this technique of beeping people once per hour and having them write down what they were doing and what they were thinking. We had people do that for two days. What we found is that about 43% of the time, people were repeating what they did in the past in a specific context, and they were doing it while thinking about something else, Mm -hmm. suggesting that they must be doing it automatically because they're not consciously making decisions about their behavior. Instead, it's sort of running off because they're in the same context that they were in in the past. And what was most surprising to us, I think, is that all behaviors could become a habit through repetition. When we think of habits, we usually think of sort of trivial things like, well, I brush my teeth, I soap up in the shower, but anything, almost anything can become a habit if you do it often enough in the same context. 
Any difference between a good habit and a bad habit in terms of the way we approach it, the way they work, or is, are they pretty much the same thing in terms of the way our systems establish them? Yeah, that was another interesting part of the study is that things that people would want to do, like exercise, eating healthfully, were habits in just the same way as things that people maybe wouldn't want to do, like sleeping late, um, overeating. All of those things can become habits. Wendy Wood is a psychologist and the provost professor of psychology and business at the University of Southern California. We're sharing our 2020 conversation about her book, Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. You write that personality difference didn't seem to explain how we were guided by habit. So like, so I, I guess there's this impression that real achievers um, are different in the way they establish habits or don't. Um, people who are brighter maybe, uh, more ambitious. Um, but, but it doesn't seem like that really ap- applies here at all. No, we didn't find any evidence. We've looked over and over again for personality differences and how frequently people form a habit, how easily people form a habit. Now, people who are very successful in life may have habits that are more consistent with their goals, so they may be better at forming productive habits health habits, positive relationship habits, but we all have habits of some kind. Back to this idea that we're overconfident that we're acting on on intention. It's, It's something you call the introspection illusion. This is something that I'm continuing to work on um, with one of my students, Asaf Mazar. And the introspection illusion is overvaluing your own experience. We all have just very compelling inner beliefs and moods and understanding of ourselves. And we take that very seriously. We tend to overvalue it in explaining our own behavior. So we tend to see our own behavior as a reflection of our moods and our own desires much more, it's interesting, much more than we think other people's behavior is. We can see other people as being more controlled by their habits and their surroundings. Our own internal experiences are so compelling, though, that we tend to think we are responding to them. Let's talk about how psychology comes into play here because you write about seems to be this um, working with behaviorists for example um, and this kind of shift in the field of psychology about how all of this works talk because you write a bit about this history how, how we've been thinking and how the idea in psychology has been changing about the way we've approached these ideas about about habit and the way they're formed Just talk a little bit about that part if you would Yeah, I think this is why psychologists in general 
are a bit skeptical about the idea of habit. In the middle of the last century, Skinner, B.F. Skinner, if you remember him, yeah. was very popular. And he had a specific way of defining habit, which didn't involve conscious thought or non-conscious thought. He didn't think what went on in our heads was that important. Instead, he thought we were responding to the cues in our environment and the rewards, very much like the pigeons in his research. And this idea was popular until oh, maybe the 80s, 1980s, 1970s. And then psychologists started to realize there's a whole lot more going on than just responding to cues or responding to rewards. Instead, people have the ability to create, to think, to innovate, and they do so in ways that Skinner was not imagining. It's taken several decades to recognize that we have both a habit mechanism and this more thoughtful, emotional, um, very real, very innovative cognitive system, but they're both there. They just do somewhat different things. I wanted to ask about a study you did about running habits. You were you were, maybe you still are a jogger, and this this was something that kind of interested you. Like, how is it that people establish a habit for? going on a run. The thing that was so interesting to me is you write that that repeated actions have to be cued by context. And context is an important part of, the, of this story. And cued by context, not so much deliberation. In fact, you said it seems like what you learned from this study was the more you think about it, the more you try to think about how important it is for my cardiovascular health that I go on this run this afternoon – the less you may actually do it? Is, is that sort of right? Yes, we do have some research that suggests that, although this particular study showed that for people who had running habits, like I did at the time, <laughs> that thinking about the context in which you typically run brings thoughts of running to mind. And usually it's just easier for us to do the thing in mind than to make a decision to do something else. But for people who had strong running habits, and this is what was surprising to us, their goals for running, so if they're concerned about relaxation or they're concerned about their fitness or their weight control, bringing those thoughts to mind didn't activate ideas of running. Hmm. And this is, where, this is where you can start to trace the difference between our conscious thinking selves and our habit memories. That habit memories are tied to context, where we typically do things, when we do things, mm. the people around us. Our goals, however, are part of our conscious thinking selves, and they drive behaviors that we don't do that often. Yeah. So for people who are just starting to run in our study, 
people who were occasional runners who didn't have a strong habit, when they thought of their goals for running, running did come to mind for them. Hmm. Because these were people who had to make themselves run. They had to motivate themselves, get themselves out there. And thinking of their goals for doing it helped them. Didn't help strong habit runners. Didn't hurt them. It was just kind of irrelevant to running. If you form a strong enough habit, your goals aren't that important in driving the behavior. Yeah. Say something about the study you did giving people a choice between something healthy, in this case carrots, and something not so healthy, uh, in this case M&Ms. Because this, again, underlines this idea that it doesn't help to just be intentional when you're establishing a habit. Yes. So this was done in the lab, and this was done with undergraduates at USC who wanted to be healthy, but they liked both carrots and M&Ms. And what we did is we trained them on a computerized task to that they could choose carrots to eat whenever a certain picture appeared on the screen. And we ran them for several days playing this game. So they learned an automatic habit to choose carrots whenever this picture was on the screen. And I should say that when they were in the lab, they were hungry. Then we gave them an option of choosing M&Ms when that same picture was on the screen. So they could choose either carrots or M&Ms after they had, but this was after they had formed a habit to choose carrots. (laughs) And what was interesting was that these people who had formed this carrot choice habit were much less likely to choose M&Ms than when other pictures were on the screen that didn't have to do with that carrot choice. (laughs) So our healthy habits can protect us against making bad choices, just like our bad habits get in the way of us making good choices. Our good habits can protect us. They're protective. So if you practice the right thing, then you persistently do it in the future, even if you have other options. Yeah, which gets us to repetition, another one of the the bases for for a habit. And you're right, we have to willfully decide to repeat a new action again and again and again, even if it's a struggle. Um, So let's talk a little bit about how this works. One of the things you write about is it seems to be to get the habit to get stored in what I guess is called uh, your procedural memory. So Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about this pathway, this kind of journey that it has to go through. Yeah, so... If you are trying to form a new habit, then, as you say, you have to make a decision. So decision-making is important. Um, You may have to exert self-control initially to do the behavior, and you want to do it in the same context in a sort of a routinized way as much as possible. And presumably, 
if you're trying to form a new habit, it's something that you're proud of or you want or that you enjoy in some way. Over time, as you repeat the behavior in the same way and get that reward, could just be a good feeling. The behavior itself that you're repeating becomes associated with the context. And that is actually the habit. It's that mental association that then, when you're in that context in the future, the habit automatically comes to mind. Mm -hmm. So habits are kind of mental shortcuts that we form from past repetition in a particular context. How long does this take? What's the uh-huh. time frame? <laughs> I know that's like, let's tell me how long this is going to take. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you know, habits are, it's a learning mechanism. Yeah. So things that are really hard take longer to learn. Things that are really easy, we learn faster. A colleague of mine studied exactly how long it takes people to learn a simple health habit, like adding a piece of fruit to their lunch or taking a walk after dinner. And they were told to do it in the same way every day and in the same context. The end result was it took people an average of about 66 days, a couple months plus some, to learn such a simple habit, for it to become automated enough so that they could do it without thinking about it, so that they didn't really have to intend to do it. It just happened when they were in that context. There's this. So so if you're trying to sort of figure out how to get a habit going, how many what like what's the magic number of repetitions that you have to go through? There's a you tell about Uber, um, the company Uber, and how they tried to sort of find the the magic number of repetitions to, for for yeah. their drivers. Yeah, Uber has for many. There are many reasons why Uber has a hard time keeping their drivers. <laughs> um, but one is that it's just very challenging to have somebody in your car and to join that service industry using your own vehicle. So people have to think a lot about it. And what Uber found is that they lost drivers often in the first 10 rides that they took. It was a challenge for drivers to know how to interact with customers, how to use all the equipment. After about 10 times, though, if drivers stuck that long, they tended to stick further because they had started to learn skills that became more habitual, it seemed. Wendy Wood, her book is Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. It's 
talk about rewards. It's another important part. I think for a lot of us, when we think of a reward for you know uh, getting into shape, you think down the road, I'm going to give myself a trip to Europe or you know do this cool thing. But one of the things you write about is that these rewards have to be more immediate than that. They can't be these long-term rewards. Talk a little bit about the reward part of all of this. Yeah, I think that many people misunderstand this, that we assume, as you say, that long-term rewards will work. So my insurance company, at least, gives me a a reduction in the rate because I'm not a smoker. They give me a reduction in the rate because I'm willing to go for a health physical. Those things don't form habits because they happen too far removed from the behavior. The neuroscience behind habit formation is involves dopamine. And we know dopamine as sort of the feel-good neurotransmitter. It does more than that. It does many different things. But one of the things it does is when you experience a reward, your brain releases dopamine. And dopamine helps to stamp in whatever is in memory right then. So it stamps in the behavior you just performed and the context you were in with the realization that behavior got you a reward. So dopamine is useful for helping to form those context response associations that ultimately are our habits. This was interesting too. You say that to our conscious minds, these big larger rewards that we know are coming are going to motivate us. But you say habits thrive on uncertainty. Yes, there's another trick to rewards, which is that if you think about your cell phone, one of the reasons why we all find our cell phones so addictive is because we only get a reward from checking our cell phones every once in a while. Most of the time, the stuff on my phone is not interesting. It's not something that is of use to me, and I just delete it. But every once in a while, there's that one nugget of interesting information from a friend you haven't talked to in a while, Mm. something happening at work. Those are rewards that are intermittent. They're occasional rewards. And those are the ones that are especially powerful in building habits because they generate high levels of dopamine responding because they're so occasional. They're not what we expect. But it's the same thing with slot machines. You know, uh, slot machines are, are designed to most of the time give us no reward at all, but every once in a while we get a huge payoff. And that's what makes them so addictive is that huge dopamine release on that occasional reward. You know, one of the things you write about in the book is that um, we need to 
as you say, take full measure of our environment. This was an important part for your cousin, for example. One of the reasons she struggled was she was always operating in this kind of hostile environment. And, and, and so I wanted to ask you about this part of the story. Talk a little bit about the experience where, where you, where you um, change your environment or at least deal with your environment in a, in a proper way. Because you had this experience when you lived in Paris. And you lived there for a long time, like nine months or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then when you, when you went back home, you say it, you use that experience to help you change this habit and you, because you wanted to drive less. You wanted to walk more. And I think a lot of people right now, at the beginning of the year, are thinking about what they can do to decrease their carbon footprint, to you know, be more responsible at sort of environmentally. They're thinking a lot about climate change. Talk a little bit about your own experience with that because this was, this was interesting. Yeah. I, um, as you said, I spent some time in Paris. I really loved the pedestrian environment there. And we have that in some of our cities. I live in Los Angeles, so it's not very walk-friendly. Most people drive. And I just hated the idea of coming back to this beautiful climate and sitting in a car on a freeway. So many things you can do. My approach was when I came back, I sold my car Mm. and I started taking the train. I'm fortunate there is a train that goes out to Santa Monica where I now live and I can take that into work. But there are buses, there are other sorts of things that you can take if you want to reduce your carbon footprint and I think we all should. But the whole issue of controlling our environments so that it makes it easy for us to practice, to repeat certain behaviors, and harder to do others, I think is the basic answer to behavior change. Mm -hmm. We focus on ourselves. We talked about the introspection illusion, our own experiences. We believe self-control should be enough. But to our behavior, what is easy to repeat and what is enjoyable is what's likely to form into a habit. One of the studies that I talk about in the book that I like so much was um, a data analytics company that followed our cell phone use for several months and discovered that people, what they were doing is they were tracking how far people were willing to go to a paid fitness center, to your gym. And what they found is that people who traveled 3.6 miles went to the gym, people, their cell phones that traveled 3.6 miles went to the gym five times a month on average. People who traveled 5.1 miles on average only went once a month. So what that means is that if you want to go to the gym regularly, making it convenient, making it something that's easy to repeat in the environment that you live in is going to be very powerful. 
So find some way to integrate it with your existing、um, work schedule or going to the grocery store. Find some way to make it easy for you to repeat the behavior so that it becomes your habit. Probably the best example of this was the anti-smoking campaign,、mm. and this was done at a government policy-based level, not at an individual level. Obviously,、um, people knew for a while that smoking caused cancer. But you didn't see much reduction in smoking until the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 1970s, when the government decided that they were going to start taxing cigarettes, take them off of store shelves, so that you actually have to go ask someone to buy one. They set smoking bans in public places so that we can't. Any longer smoke? We used to smoke on airplanes.、Yeah. Um, we, we can't anymore smoke in in workplaces, in restaurants, and they reduced advertising for they they banned advertising for cigarettes. So what you got from all of those environmental changes was a huge reduction in smoking rates. We went from almost fifty percent of us smoking in the mid of the Prior century, now it's fifteen percent. So environmental changes like those that put a little bit of friction on a behavior—they didn't outlaw smoking. You know, they could have made it illegal, but they didn't. Instead, they put friction on it to make it more difficult, and then people eventually just sort of gave up. <laughs> Well, this gets us to a really important theme, I think, in the book, and that is that, aside from the thing that you can do for yourself,、um, there is a role here, an important role for policymakers and governmental officials in understanding the environments we live in,、um, because because they have that powerful effect on the ha- the habits we establish. Talk a little bit about that as well. The the, the importance of policymakers in thinking about This idea of convenience and designing, really structuring places、um, to to help us, you know, create these better habits. Yeah, this was a, a sort of a a bit of a surprise for me, in a way, as a psychologist, because I start off thinking about individual behavior and individual habits, but once I started to study habits and to Take them apart and think more analytically about how we form habits and how we change habits. The role of the environment became very clear, and that is, to some extent, something we can control in our own lives. So, another study I really like is one in which people had two bowls of food in front of them. One was a bowl of buttered popcorn, and another was a bowl of apple slices. Sometimes, in some conditions in this study, the apple slices were up close; the popcorn was far away. You really had to reach for it. Sometimes the popcorn was up close; the apple slices were far away. 
When the popcorn was close, people ate three times more calories than when the apple slices were close. So you can use that to control your own behavior to some extent, right? Mm. Proximity can reduce friction, just like it does with the gym-going study I described um, of how far we travel to a gym. But distance can increase friction. And so putting the things you don't want to become habitual further away so you have to work for them just makes it less likely that you'll form those habits. So, so there are ways that we as individuals can take this information and use it in our own lives to form more productive, healthier, happier habits. But there's a role for policymakers as well because our environments need to be structured to give us those opportunities to live healthy lives and to be productive and to keep our families together and do these things habitually, persistently. And that requires some policy shifts, Mm. not necessarily to limit what we're doing, but to give us the options so that we can live those lives that we want to live that are best for us. Let me ask you finally. So there's, there are these two parts that are going on that we've talked about. There's this kind of unconscious process at play that, we, that we're not, not aware of, of course, that w- we think it's about intention, but it's, there's only so much you can do with that. that this, so there's that part. But then there's the idea that in order to, to develop repetition and get into these processes, we have to willfully make these decisions so there are these – as you say, as we've talked about this kind of internal struggle going on. What's the, where do you start? Like what's the first thing to do for people who are now thinking about all of this at the beginning of the new year? Mm-hmm. I would start with the recognition of what you want to change. For many of us, these New Year's resolutions – The most popular ones have to do with diet and exercise. The next most popular ones have to do with saving more money, spending less. So figure out what it is you want to change. It's probably best just out of of simplicity to work on one thing at once. And instead of focusing on yourself and getting yourself motivated – and getting all of the reasons why you should do these things front and center. This is what we typically do, right? Mm -hmm. We work ourselves up so that we are able to make a change. Instead of that, you'd probably be better off trying to think about how to restructure your environment so that you're more like the students in my study who had a habit to choose carrots and were able to keep doing so even when M&Ms became available as a choice. That's your goal if you want to lose weight, if you want to eat a healthier diet. You want to have an environment that supports your new habit because your conscious thinking self, as we discussed, 
is not going to be able to control a behavior like that. You're going to end up thinking about food constantly. It will plague you. And ultimately, you're going to get tired of trying to control your behavior. So making it easy on yourself by changing the environment so that you are able to repeat behaviors that you enjoy and that are easy is a much better way to approach change. Wendy Wood, thank you very much. Thank you. This was good fun. Wendy Wood, she's the provost professor of psychology and business at the University of Southern California. Habits, bad habits. You write that Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter at Radio West. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us with comments or questions or suggestions at radiowest at KUER.org. The program is produced by Tim Slover and Benjamin Bombard. Our intern is Elle Cowley. Our executive producer is Carrie Watson. I'm Doug Fabrizio. 